Welcome back to Omni Shambles, the greatest podcast that has ever been made in the history of podcasts. We are joined today by, of course, my dear co-host, Swin, and then we're lucky, fortunate to have Lachlan Marquet, who graciously agreed to cut short a, a what, coffee with a source? Yeah, anything for you, Swin. <laughs> You'll get a raise. And we have Barry Bennett. Barry, I want you to, uh, you give me your title and your biography, or why don't you let the listeners know who you are and your credentials for being on this esteemed podcast. I have no credentials. Okay. Well, why did we book you? (laughs) (laughs) That will have to be proven, I guess. Okay. My name is Barry Bennett. I am the founder of a firm here in town called Avenue Strategies, which is a global political lobbying firm, if you will. We do politics around the globe. We also do lobbying here and abroad. Before that, I was involved in the Trump campaign. Uh, Before that, I was campaign manager for Dr. Ben Carson. When that started to hit the rocks, uh, (laughs) I got a call from the Trump folks, asked me to come up to New York. I took the train up. I knew enough that the meeting was probably going to be a disaster if I didn't take in an agenda of my own. Sure. I took in an agenda. I gave him the top 10 things that should be keeping him up at night. And the meeting went really well. What was on the 10? Actually, let's just go, what was number one? <laughs> <laughs> Winning the delegates but not having them vote for you would be number one. You know, so it was a good meeting. I came home, back to D.C., didn't hear anything for about 10 days. So I assumed that the meeting had not gone so well. One day I'm driving to my office in Old Town, and uh, Bob Costa calls me, and he says, Barry, I have it from two sources that you're a senior advisor to the Trump campaign. And I said, Bob, that's, that's <laughs> not true. <laughs> uh, I, and I did talk to them, but... I'm not a senior advisor of the Trump campaign. And he said, well, uh, my sources are Donald Trump and Corey Lewandowski. And I said, uh, Bob, I'm a senior advisor to the Trump campaign. Any idea how much I'm making? Uh, <laughs> and that's how I came about working for the Trump campaign. Well, how much did you end up making? No, sure. Nothing. <laughs> um, All right, let's go further back, actually, than this. What was your first political job? Uh, I was uh, the sergeant at arms in the state senate. I actually worked on the Reagan campaign in Which 84. Which state? Ohio. Okay. Worked on the Reagan campaign in Ohio in 84. The guy that chaired the campaign was a state senator. He brought me on as his page in the state senate in college, and I rose up to be the uh, sergeant at arms, which was in charge of the pages. And then from there, I graduated from college in finance just as Black Monday hit and came to Washington to work on the House Banking Committee just as the SNL's crisis occurred. Uh, and I finally, Great timing. I finally took the hint and just worked on politics full time. What did you like about politics? Everybody is drawn to it because... Uh, Not everybody. Well, everybody that is drawn to it is drawn to it because they think they can make a difference. I remember in the state senate, you know, I, I drafted the legislation, the Ohio Tuition Trust Authority, which allowed you to save your kids' college education because I was a kid who didn't have parents who could mm-hmm. save, so I put myself through school. And, you know, I was very proud of a lot of things I did then. I'm not proud of all the things I've done since, but it was a good ah. start. <laughs> did you ever want to do elected office? Or did you always no, want to be behind the No, no, no. Why no, not? No. I never really wanted to be out in front like that. The real work was always done in the back room, right? Yeah. It's always the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting. When did you learn that? You know, I worked at the RNC briefly after the 94 revolution, if you sure. will, for Haley Barber. And I probably learned more in three months watching Haley Barber about politics than I had learned in my lifetime. So people won't I... know who Haley Barber is. Why don't you explain? Haley, Haley was... Barber was chairman of the RNC, a legendary chairman of the RNC from Mississippi, had run for Senate 
and had lost. It was the best thing that ever happened to him. Right. He is a political genius. Legendary fundraiser, of course. That yeah, was yeah. well, that, you know, incredible to, fundraiser. To be successful in politics, you must be a right. good fundraiser. And few do it better than he does. He does. totally understood it. But I mean, yeah. the time I was at the RNC, when he went back to Mississippi on Friday, he stopped somewhere in the South and swore in 100 new Republicans. And on Monday morning on his way back to Washington, he stopped in another city in the South and swore in another 100 Republicans. Uh, <laughs> it was crazy. It was a great time to be at the RNC. And he sort of understood, as you just hinted at or said outright, that the real business is not done in front of the cameras. Totally. And he, he was a highly effective lobbyist, still is, and to Lachlan's point, a legendary fundraiser. Did you feel like to some degree you wanted to be a Haley Barber type figure in Republican politics? I didn't have that kind of ego to think that I could be. <laughs> uh, but I knew this is what I wanted to do. And I was really good, or at least I thought I was really good, at boiling things down to short, succinct talking points and understanding how to solve problems. Right. And that's all I do today. The Obama years. What yeah. were you doing during the Obama years? I had a um, grassroots political lobbying firm with Mary Cheney down in Old Town. Were they good? Were they good years for you? Yeah, the uh, Excel pipeline is going to put both of my kids through college. Congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 2016 comes along, and we've had almost eight years at that point of Democratic presidency. We have a number of accomplished Republicans deciding that they want to run for office. Yeah, you join the campaign of the world famous neurosurgeon who. No one thinks has a shot in hell. Except for Sean Hannity. Did Sean Hannity? Sean Hannity played up Ben Carson a lot during the Obama. But Carson was a very, he was a well-known guy for having not been involved in politics at all. Oh, no, saying like Ben Carson should be president. That was a big uh, Why did you get Joe Mika as well. But how did you get drawn to Ben Carson? You've been in actual Washington politics, which is not where he had been. What was the allure of him and how did you even get attached to him? By that point, I'd had a healthy dis trust of Washington, like most people. And I had initially refused. I really wasn't interested at my age to go you know, manage a presidential race. But they talked me into going down and meet with him. So I flew down to Florida and I spent the day with Ian Candy. And, you know, he's just super smart. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always come across that way on television. I get it. But he's a super smart guy, super well-read. I thought he may not win, but he's got something to say. And it's important that people hear it. At that point, he had no fundraising list. He'd never raised money for anything other than his own little charity. So we had no idea if this was going to go anywhere. And we set about building an apparatus that you know raised $68 million, more than anybody else running for president on the Republican side. You know, I sold a lot of dog collars, a lot of hats. We sold hats before Donald Trump sold hats. What did your hats say? Just Carson hats, just, you know, camouflage with Carson gold letters on it. It was, you know, we didn't come up with MAGA, unfortunately. Yeah, I was going to say. He was treated pretty viciously by Donald Trump. Towards oh, yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Do you remember some of the accusations? What was it like? He, he, just said, he, he said he was lying about the stabbing incident. Carson had basically said that early in his life he had almost stabbed somebody, or he had stabbed somebody. He had attempted to stab his brother. His brother. He has never said that, but I mean, that's the story. And Trump said he's a liar. We're talking about the Ben Carson. Ben Carson, you can accuse him of a lot of things, right? But lack of integrity is not something you can accuse him of. So I guess it's a surprise from my vantage point why you would join Trump's campaign, having witnessed him treat someone who you respected with such lack of respect. Well, I mean, in the end, Ben Carson was the only person who was ever ahead of Donald Trump during the whole process. Brilliant six weeks in August and uh, <laughs> October, September and October in uh, 2015. But, you know, there was a person involved in Ben's campaign 
who was a friend of Ben's who I just couldn't shake, who just continued to make disastrous choices after disastrous choices. And I thought it was time for somebody else to see if they could force that person out of the campaign because I wasn't able to. So, you know, I had separated from Ben cleanly. I, I love and respect him, but I had separated from the campaign. Did you think Trump was going to win? Yeah, I went on Joe and Mika's show maybe early January. They asked me who was going to win, and I said, I can pretend things aren't true, but I can't suspend my belief in mathematics, and Donald Trump's going to win. And he certainly did. He did? Obviously, he did. Um, okay, so let's get to modern-day Washington. Well, uh, well, 2016, 2017 Washington. How close were you to joining the administration, if at all? I had no interest. I had Why worked not? in the Bush administration. Okay. My wife had worked for President Bush all eight years. We've served so you decided, you I'm going to start this lobbying shop, basically. Yeah, I was going to start a political slash lobbying shop, yeah. Why? You know, my father asked me for years when I was going to get a real job, you know, with a company that actually makes something. Uh, and I've decided this is my only true skill set, so I have to uh, go ahead with go with this. <laughs> you were gifted this. Was part of the reason that there were so few people who were connected to Trump world that business was there to be had? There's certainly, even today, a, a major lack of people who understand him understand why he got elected. And I think that um, I do understand that. I mean, I remember with my first week with Ben, I went to uh, Des Moines and I took two or three people with us and we did focus groups yeah. in Des Moines because I wanted to know what people knew about Ben and what they liked about Ben. But I also wanted to know kind of state of the race kind of thing. So I asked them to put together a panel of Jeb Bush supporters in Des Moines and they tried for three days and they couldn't put together 10 people who were supporting Jeb Bush in Des Moines. And that told me everything that I suspected, that once again, Washington is horribly wrong about where the public is. I never thought that Jeb Bush ever had a chance. Ted Cruz was an interesting candidate, but when Ted Cruz talks, he hears Thomas Paine. And you can't really be an outsider candidate and talk about all your achievements in the Senate. Yeah. And the same with Rubio, just there was no lane for Rubio. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was going to be an outsider. I thought Ben had a shot at that, and he did, and he could have possibly won had it not been for the Paris attacks and a refocus on foreign policy and terrorism. Ben was never going to be the guy that pounds the podium right. and say, let's, you know, bomb, bomb the all. shit out of ISIS. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ben would never do that, and Trump was willing to do that. But there's this void here, right? Like, you kind of understood Trump's appeal. Well, you definitely understood it. But businesses that were seeking to influence policy in Washington, D.C., needed someone who understood it. And it was like four people. Is that overestimating the universe? Maybe. When I came out for Trump, all my friends in Washington, I don't think there was anybody else in Washington that was public for Trump before me. They all said, are you nuts? I mean, you're never going to work in this town again. You know how many times I heard that? <laughs> um, the president and I are not best friends. But I do understand him, and he has a really good political ear. I mean, I wrote the memo about carrier air conditioning, and the way this would work is I would write a memo I was into Corey, who would hand it to the president-elect or president nominee, or it wasn't even nominee then. And carrier air conditioning, I just thought was a perfect instance where these are Indiana jobs going to Mexico. This is something you ought to be able to ride on. So, you know, you send in the memo, then you watch the rally that night, which was luckily broadcasted live by every cable net ever known to man. And, you know, if your lines did well, then they made it the next night. And if they didn't, then that was the end of it. But that one obviously worked pretty well. What were other lines of yours that ended up going from memo to campaign scripture, basically? 
a lot of the outsider stuff about the plot of people like my parents who really had a rough, rough go of it. Both worked constantly. They were, you know, middle class by description, but these are people who hawked their wedding bands when I was in high school to make a mortgage payment, right? They'd suffered a long time. And, you know, the typical Republican response of, well, this is just how, you know, free markets work. It wasn't very comforting to a lot of people. I had my finger on that pulse for a long time. But how did that translate into sort of client pitches? I mean, you needed to get business. You're starting this firm. You want to get business. What do you tell these people? I'll give you the secret of my marketing success. Sure. Hello? Hi. <laughs> they called. I never pitched. They just started calling. You know, in our first week in business, we probably had 50 people who were trying to hire us. And why do you think that is? Because they didn't know who else to go to, right? I mean, it was clear that Tony Podesta wasn't the right person. Well, yeah, for uh, a variety you know, of reasons. Uh, you know, Haley Barber wasn't the right person. <laughs> Everybody in town had taken shots at him or wasn't helpful. You know, you mentioned sort of the insight into how the president thinks or works. So, like, what is the insight that you have that either you're able to use yourself or share with clients or bring to bear on their behalf in terms of how this president goes about making policy or making public statements that you think is something that only someone who has worked with him would really understand about the way he functions. Everybody in Washington is getting to understand right? It, right? Well, yeah. What people don't understand is how transactional he is, right? He is perfectly willing to give you a win for a win for himself. That's something that Washington hasn't had in a long time, right? That actually might be the cure of solving many of the problems that face the country. But Congress has been broken like that for you know decades. Does Congress being broken, I mean, obviously affects your job, right? The appropriations process is one of the easiest ways to get lobbying dollars. And now that it's essentially dysfunctional and broken, how does that change what you do? You know, what I do is more design campaigns for my clients, for them to execute. I'll help them execute it. But like if you're the president of a country. You don't need me to call the president to ask for a meeting for you. You can call him. The question is, what do you say when you get him on the phone? And how is it that you position the need for a meeting that's a win for both of you? That's a good point. Like, no one really speaks the language Trump speaks, right? You're not a lobbyist. You're an interpreter. I'm a Sherpa, yeah. You're a Sherpa. (laughs) In that way, but also in other ways, how would you say Washington is structurally different now than I mean, the Obama years or the Bush years or whatever. The hypocrisy on both sides is stratospheric levels beyond anything we've ever seen. The partisanship also is, you know, sky high. And, you know, I remember sitting, I'll do a name drop. I was sitting in the green room at CNN with Paul Begala, and I was talking to Paul about how is it that we get the country to come back together? And he said, you know, the rising economy will do it. Well, obviously that hasn't done it. I don't know how we get the country back together. One of the Obama doctrines was that once Republicans realized how badly they were losing because of demographics, they would moderate themselves. The fever fever will will break. break. That never actually happened. The other thing that is clouding people's judgment here is that the hatred for Trump inside the Beltway and I'll say Manhattan and the entire state of California clouds their judgment, right? Yeah. If you look at Trump getting 38% approval among Hispanics, Bush got 20, and we thought that was historic. If you look at gains in the African-American community approval, again, it's small in terms of the total number, 
but it's historic and compared to what we're, everything we've ever seen. Well, before. I think part of the reason people are so on edge about it is I think people can acknowledge that the economy is in fairly good standing and certainly the statistics you know. But I think for people, a lot of it is just that he does things so unconventionally to the point of it's not norm busting. It's really, <laughs> yeah, it's jarring and it also is testing the f- sort of constitutional fabric of the country. And you're like, the economy is great, but do we want to live in this condition? I hear this in, inside the Beltway a yeah. great deal. And maybe you don't, no you don't hear that, that a lot in Youngstown, Ohio. Well, this gets to, so I want to get back to the sort of the theme here, which is, you know, he does things so differently, right? And obviously you have to adjust as a lobbyist in this town around his weird quirks. So, for instance, do you, I mean, do you put a premium on getting your client on, for instance, like Fox and Friends or Fox News? Do you have to change your own professional tendencies around his own habits? It's true of any president. If you want them to see your story in terms of advertising, you have to advertise where they're watching. So, I mean, Fox and Friends is both a cheap buy and a highly effective one <laughs> uh, in that respect. But I think a lot of people spend too much time trying to get to all of his friends, hoping that one of them can get shape his, his thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, how much money did Michael Cohen make in his yeah. brief run at shadow lobbying? And he didn't do anything. Yeah. Nothing. And he managed to still in that brief period of time million make, dollars, I think yeah, make more yeah. money than How I'm going to see. Four million. Yeah. <laughs> he made four million. Four million dollars. <laughs> Do you think because he was Trump was so new to the scene that it allowed for a lot of hucksters to just pop up and essentially steal cash? Yeah, I think there's some of that out there. You know, it's amazing. How many people played such an important role in the campaign? <laughs> the campaign's over. And the truth is, the campaign was Donald Trump in a microphone. Yeah. There was no strategy. There was no infrastructure. There were no employees to speak of. On the flip side of that, though, there seems to be less of a high-level revolving door, I guess. You know, you saw folks from the Obama White House, for instance, going to places like Amazon and McDonald's and United Airways and, you know, major Fortune 500 companies. There's, with a few notable exceptions, there seems to be less of that so far in this White House. So do you see that as well? And if so, what do you attribute that to? I've had a major tech company that I've been close to for a long, long time. And, you know, they wanted to hire me. And I suggested that they not because their employees would go crazy and it would be distracting from what, what I could do for them. Because of your ties to Trump. Because of the ties to Trump. So I think there are a lot of companies that are not exactly dying to have, you know, protests in their lobby because some Trumpster is working at the, but at the same time, their employees, at the same time, they're plenty uh, willing to buy me lunch and pick my brain. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is a like a whole subgenre of corporate accountability that's happening now. Accountability or protestation, depending on what you call it, you see it with the Fox News stuff, right? Like instead of going after them from a PR perspective, they are targeting their advertisers to yeah. get them to not run ads on Laura Ingram's show. Yes, but I think there's also this new willingness in corporate America to play politics in the boardroom which, frankly, we've never seen before, right? and goes almost entirely against their core mission, which is to create shareholder value. And I think that will stop. There will be a backlash against that. Republicans are not very organized in the protest movements. But if I had a bunch of money to cause trouble today, I would start forming shareholder lawsuits against companies that participate in politics on the left. There you go. You get a, We just came up with a million-dollar idea on Omni Shambles. Looking forward a little bit, What's like your big fear for Trump in the next year and a half as he gets into the re-election? Um, he's getting better. There's no way you can't argue that he's giving better speeches. The State of the Union was by far the best he's given. He's got the capabilities. They've been slow 
to, I think, surround him with a strategy that he buys into. I begged and pleaded with everyone that I knew that during this whole jobs issue, that he start tweeting pictures of people who got new jobs or got their first paychecks or something to reinforce the issue. That every time there's somebody who's going to open a business that has 100 new employees, he should go cut the ribbon because he drags Swin with him. And, you know, it's everybody's forced to write about this dry cleaner expansion. And uh, well, this is know, a problem Omaha. every president faces, right? I remember doing pieces on the Obama stimulus. There's a database of stimulus recipients and we would call up. We went down to uh, Charlotte for the convention. We called up people in the area or we went, sorry, we went to Tampa for the Republican convention, called up people in the Tampa area who had gotten stimulus money. And they had no fucking clue that they had gotten stimulus money, right? right. They, they just assumed it was like some state grant or, you know, it had fallen in their laps. There's always a complaint that a president or even a member of Congress is failing to sell their accomplishments to the full extent that they can sell them. But is there like a broader political worry that you have with Trump other than that? And also, are there anyone in the Democratic field that you think would pose particular challenges to him? I think he goes into 2020 with an economy that's doing quite well, unemployment that's virtually non-existent, historic highs for almost every demographic group you can come up with, stock market that's doing quite well. You know, the foreign policy achievements will be, if not peace on the Korean Peninsula, a de-escalation, which in itself probably deserves a higher degree of praise that he's getting. New trade deals with Canada and Mexico, which no longer incentivize American businesses to move jobs there. Right. He's going to declare victory with a China trade deal, which will be, if not everything that it could be, it's still so be historic. So you think they resolve that before the campaign? Oh, I think he can declare victory at any time. Yeah. That's what I think. I think that he's going to have a European trade deal, which will be very good. I think that this stuff in Venezuela and chasing Marxism out of South America and Central America. Barry, ask for your fears, not for your... But, I mean, so here's my fear, right? <laughs> this, these are things that any president should have an 80% approval rating on, right? I mean, these yeah, are the sure. leaders that, that we've dreamed of. But the problem is his personal behavior gets in the way of his successes. And if he were a little more measured about... Let's just talk about this one story today. Uh, it'd be even better. But isn't there something to be said that his excesses are a big part of what got him elected and energized his base? So there you kind of walk a weird tightrope of we want him to be more measured and more conventional, but that's not what I drew people. Be, I don't necessarily want him to be more measured. I want him to be more focused. I like the fact that he's willing to say anything. I like the fact that he understands that the only way you lose is if you stop fighting. I like those traits, but I want him to be able to focus on one thing at a time and not on things that are not terribly important. And then there's the backdrop, though, that's always there of the Russia probe and the Mueller stuff. So this week, obviously, it's Andrew McCabe's book coming out. And why don't we, we have a little sound bit. This is Andrew McCabe talking to CBS. There were a number of things that caused us to believe that we had adequate predication or adequate reason and facts to open the investigation. The president had been speaking in a derogatory way about our investigative efforts for weeks, describing it as a witch hunt. Russia is a ruse. I have nothing to do with Russia. Haven't made a phone call to Russia in years. Publicly undermining the effort of the investigation. And then let's play the last bit, too, which is also important. This is, again, Andrew McCabe talking to CBS. Put together, these circumstances were articulable facts that indicated that a crime may have been committed. President may have been engaged in obstruction of justice in the firing of Jim Comey. Again, this is nothing new. This has been here for a while. We know that these accusations are out there, but they continually come up again and again and again. 
And do you foresee this ever, I mean, Trump ever shaking this? He has shaken it. He just hasn't stopped the chatter about it, right? I mean, the Senate. I don't know if he's shaking it. You talk about a president who say who should be at 70%, right? Yeah, but I mean, the hardest thing in the world to do is to make Donald Trump a victim. And Adam Schiff and the Democrats are trying their best to do that. If the Senate Intelligence Committee, which I think we all have a little more respect for the Senate Intelligence Committee than perhaps the House one, if they say there's nothing there, yet Adam Schiff sees it in plain sight, I mean, come on. He's actually helping Trump at this point. You think so? Yeah. He's making him a victim. This is sort of akin to sort of how Clinton parlayed congressional Republican oversight in 1994-95. Not only that, but even the impeachment, right? We ended up making Bill Clinton a victim of Republican aggression. And And victimhood in America is very popular. And when you see people like Andrew McCabe all over the news and before him, James Comey, look, the analogs here are clearly evident, both of them used to be senior law enforcement officials. Both of them came out with books and then starred whirlwind, high-profile anti-Trump media tours that got the president incredibly incensed. And then major Republican Party organs and the Trump administration itself activate against to wage a public relations war on these specific guys, Comey and McCabe, and of course, the president of the United States himself. So when you see these guys going out there, like McCabe, Comey, do you think of it in the same way? Do you think these people are victimizing the president? Or do you see it as just another foil that the president has to sort of beat about and try to bully in the public sphere? I guess, having been in Washington for 30 years, I see it more as they're pushing a book, mm-hmm. they're profiteering. You can something say, the president you can of the United say States anything can with the word may in it. Make any accusation in the world as long as you have the word may in it. And suddenly it can be a headline. So wouldn't the logical strategic move for the president be to just ignore this shit? Yeah, that's what I would have done. I would have said, you know, <laughs> now I know it's very hard to be called treasonous and just sit back and take it. Sure. But I mean, that's why you have you, you put out Kellyanne or you put out somebody else to go fight this war. You don't do it yourself. And then you tweet 20 times a day people who got their first paychecks today and how excited you are about that. So if you had to put a odd on his reelection at this point in time, it seems like you're fairly bullish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he could grasp defeats from the jaws of victory. Sure. But all things being equal, he'll win. Are you worried that if he doesn't win, that your unique talent as someone who speaks the language of Trump might not be as much in demand anymore? Well, I mean, no one will care about Donald Trump if he's not here. But I don't really worry about that. I've been here for 30 years. I, you know, I've worked. You on, will adjust. I will work for anybody except Mitt Romney. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What if we end on that hilarious note? You can get Omni Shambles on Google Play. You can get it on iTunes, DailyBeast.com. And as always, a plea to the listener out there to tell your friends about this and to give us a really good rating because we're really trying hard. Tune in next week again. And thanks for joining us, Barry. I really appreciate it. And illuminating how Washington functions in the age of Donald Trump.